although I am sure you don't remember it, the very first sound that you ever made entering into this world after leaving the warm, muted confines of your mother's womb was a lament. You lamented before you did anything else. You cried. When you entered a broken world with bright lights and cold temperatures, the first sound that you made was a cry. No one needed to teach you how to cry. It is natural because we live in a world that's broken. Tears and crying are how we enter the world. Tears and crying are how we exit the world. There's not a funeral that happens without some kind of tears. At your funeral, there will be tears. We live in a broken world, and even last week at Mike Elliott's funeral, I found myself leaving that funeral once again thinking there's something wrong with the world. I've never left a funeral thinking, now that's the way life should be. In fact, the older I get, the more convinced I am. I hate death and I long for Jesus to come and remove sin and brokenness and tears and crying and death. You know, I've discovered over the last four plus decades of my life, I've spent a lot of time crying. I've dealt with a lot of pain, I'm sure you have as well. I've done a lot of lamenting, both internally and externally. But you know what else I've discovered? I've discovered that while crying is natural because I'm a human being, lamenting in a way that's biblical and right and helpful is not natural. There's something about lament that initially makes me uncomfortable, even scared. Think, for instance, the last time that you were around somebody who has, was experiencing deep, deep grief. Think of a funeral where you heard the audible sounds of weeping in a sanctuary. Those moments become etched in our mind and our heart because partly they're scary because we wonder, is my friend, is my spouse ever not going to hurt like this? What's more, I think they're scary because we don't have a very well-developed category of biblical lament. You see, I think that we know how to cry, but I don't know that we know how to lament. So over the last number of years since I've been here at College Park, I've taught on suffering and hardship. 2009, I walked us through a series on Job. 2012, I did a series called Honest to God where I dealt with some of the tough questions that come out of the Psalms and both of those series were intended to deal with pain on a personal level. And today we're gonna start a series on the subject of lament, in particular on the book of Lamentations. And I'm doing so because I want to look at the subject of pain from two different perspectives. Where Job and the series on the Psalms dealt with personal pain, the book of Lamentations and the subject of lament deals with pain at a corporate level. In other words, do you know what to do when it isn't just you, but it's your entire small group, or your entire neighborhood, or your entire 
people group or your city or your nation is mourning. And secondly, lament is helpful in that we often don't know what to do when pain doesn't resolve itself quickly. In other words, where do you go when pain is widespread, when it doesn't look like it's gonna end soon? What language do you use? What biblical categories are available to you? How do you pray? What do you think about? How do you help someone who's in the middle of that kind of season? So these are some of the questions that we're gonna try and address. I don't think that the 21st century American evangelical church knows how to lament. I think we want our pain to end quickly, and we always believe that in our lifetime it's gonna turn out better, and sometimes that just doesn't happen. So I've chosen to take the next eight weeks looking at this subject of lament for a number of reasons. Here's the first. It's this, that pain is inevitable, and I want you to be prepared. I said this before, but the time to prepare for suffering is before it comes, and you will, at some point in time in your life, walk through a very difficult season, and the time to learn about suffering is before that season comes. But there will also be a time in your life when that suffering will extend to your circle of friends and maybe to your small group or maybe in your neighborhood or your city or your nation and you may be called upon to speak into that pain. And what do you say? And how do you talk? And how do you lament? Secondly, lament is important because pain creates strong emotions and I want you to know what to do with them. Many people, when they deal with strong emotions of pain, they either deny them, they act as though everything's okay, they come to church, they hang out with their friends, like, oh yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay, but down deep, there's these dark questions and this hardship that a person's dealing with, and so we just deny them, or secondly, we try and resolve the pain too quickly, like we gotta get to the end of the story. We want our, our, our pain to fit within a particular box of our prescribed pattern or our prescribed timeline. Third, because pain sometimes doesn't go away quickly, I want you to learn how to live in lament. I want you to see that lament is not just a path to worship, it's a path of worship. I want you to understand that it is often the pen of pain that writes the songs that call us to dance. Some of my clearest, most profound insights have come at the darkest, most deeply painful moments of my life. Some of the best authors of music and literature are those who struggle deeply. And finally, suffering and lamenting well provides an opportunity for evangelism. Evangelism. Because the world begins to hear and to see a God-centered language that they simply do not have. Our world will struggle when bad things happen and the conclusions they will draw and the language they will use will be shallow and hollow. And there's an opportunity to speak into that and to demonstrate what Eugene Peterson describes as a 
crazy good opportunity. Here's what he says. One reason why people are uncomfortable with tears and suffering is that it is a blasphemous assault on their precariously maintained American spirituality of the pursuit of happiness. They wanna avoid things that are not right with the world, as it is, without Jesus, without love, without faith. It's a lot easier to keep the American faith if they don't have to look into the face of suffering. So learning the language of lament is not only necessary to restore Christian dignity to suffering and repentance and death, it's necessary to provide a Christian witness to a world that has no language for and is therefore oblivious to the glories of wilderness and the cross. In other words, God's placed you in your office in the midst of that tragedy. He's placed you in your neighborhood in the midst of this very difficult moment. He's placed you in their family in the midst of all of these things that are happening. And the beautiful message of the cross is that there is purpose and reason and meaning in suffering and lament gives voice to it. So, the question is not do we know how to cry, we know how to cry. The question is do we know how to lament? So what do I mean by lament? Let me start at a high level and just try and define what I mean by this term. Before we get into Psalm 77, let me give you a few introductory thoughts. If you picked up our small group study guide inside of that guide on page two are some great thoughts about lamentations and the subject of lament. Let me highlight a few of them and then give you a few more. A lament is a loud cry, a howl. It's a passionate expression of grief. A lament gives voice and words to emotions that believers feel because of pain or suffering or questions that surface. You need to know that the Psalms are filled with laments. At least a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. 42 are individual laments and 16 are corporate laments. Laments as a genre are found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, much of what was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ was predicted in lament psalms. Psalm 69, verse 21, for instance, references the vinegar that Jesus would drink. Psalm 109, 25 predicts that a crowd would mock him. Psalm 22:18 references the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothing. Psalm 22:16 says they pierced my hands and my feet. All of these are lament psalms. And then the greatest example, I think, of all is what Jesus says on the cross. What were his last words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22 and verse one, a lament psalm. So lament is a much more prominent expression of one's faith than I think than many of us realize. It can be both personal, it can be communal, or it can be both, meaning I'm expressing my own lament for what's happening in my own life, I can express it on behalf of a community, or as in the case of Psalm 77, I can express it as a representative of the entire community. Laments can be confessional as I deal with my own sins, can be confessional as I deal with the sins of my nation, or they can be imprecatory as they deal with sins committed against us. 
What a lament wrestles with at its core is the circumstances of life and the difficult questions that surface regarding who God is and what he is doing. A lament wrestles with two questions. First, God, where are you right now? And secondly, if you love me, why is this happening? Have you ever asked those questions? My guess is every single one of us who's a follower of Jesus, who's run into difficulty, has struggled with those very questions. Jesus himself wrestled with that question by quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So a lament struggles with God, where are you and why is this happening? Some people think lament is the opposite of praise, it's not. Although it asks difficult questions and although it wrestles deeply, what lament is is a path to praise. It's the transition from pain to promise. It's the place of wilderness through which God leads us. It wrestles with the brokenness in us and the brokenness around us. And it longs for God's mercy. So what lament is is the position between brokenness and the coming of God's mercy. It's living in the in-between world, the tension between, I live in a world that's broken, I can't wait till God makes all things new, I live in a world that's filled with sin, I want Jesus to make everything right, I have things that have happened in my life that I, are incredibly painful, and I wanna know how this all works out, and lament is living in that land, and some of you are in that land this morning, and you just don't know what to call it, and what you're in is you're in lament land. And listen to me, you can live and be fruitful and be happy and still lament. You can struggle and suffer and be in a situation that life didn't turn out the way you had wanted it to be and you can still glorify God and honor him. You can live and lament as you wait for the coming resolution. To be involved with lament is not to be faithless. To lament well, church, is an act of faith. We'll talk about this more in a moment, but pain and difficulty and suffering, they're they're part of what it means to be human. To struggle, to question, to wrestle with what's going on is part of what it means to be a Christian. When you you understand the the problem of sin in in the world being sin, you understand the power of the cross and you know the coming eschaton, the coming end times where Christ returns and makes all things new, your heart, when you understand that, laments saying things like, how long, oh Lord, how long? How many more funerals do I have to go to? How many more car accidents have to happen? How how much more sin has to create this kind of devastation? Your heart, if you understand the scope of what's happening in the redemptive plan of God, your heart will long and say, God, how long? If you think about it, every lament is really a prayer. It is the cry of a hurting, confused, pain-filled, and yet believing heart. So I think to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. To cry is human. Any human being can cry, but I don't think you can truly lament unless you're a Christian. Let me help you understand what I mean by that. In Psalm 77, we see 
both the psalmist's praying and his remembering. Praying and remembering, which are essentially Christian. I've chosen Psalm 77. It's not even lamentations yet, but I'm doing so intentionally to try and create a category, maybe in your mind and heart, about lamentation or lament, so that when we go into the book, you'll understand how to navigate our way through it. Psalm 77 is helpful in that it provides a framework for understanding lament, and that we see the beginning of lament, and we also see the resolution of it. But you won't see it that way in the book of Lamentations. It doesn't resolve itself like Psalm 77 does. In fact, the book of Lamentations, it sort of ends without a full resolution. But isn't that how most of our lives actually work out? The psalm is ascribed to Asaph. It says, according to Jeduthun. These were two men who were part of the priestly service and they were tasked with leading the congregation in worship. Both of them sang at the dedication of the temple. Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 to 83 are attributed to Asaph. We, we don't know what the background was as to why the psalm was written. There are no specific hints as to what circumstances were playing into the writing of this psalm. If we look at other psalms like Psalm 44, Psalm 44 is very clear. There's an enemy that's attacking. That doesn't seem to be the case in Psalm 77. I think if you look at verse nine and the question about is God angry with his people, has he in anger shut up his compassion, it may have been that Israel was getting what they deserved because of their waywardness as a nation. So what does he do? He prays and remembers, he prays and remembers, and that's what I'm inviting you to do today, to pray and remember, to pray and remember. How does he pray in pain? Look at verse one. He says, I cry aloud to God. I cry aloud and he will hear me. Notice the repetition of the word aloud. He uses it twice in verse one. I will cry, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. What's happening here is the psalmist is not silent. He's praying. Verse one even says, he will hear me. Notice the orientation of his heart in verse two. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. He's, he's, he's leaning in, he's, he's praying, he's seeking God. Verse two, in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. That's a prayer position. The idea is his hands are stretched out. He's, he's, he's seeking the Lord. So what's happening here is the psalmist is reaching out to God in the midst of his pain. And while we don't know what the source of his pain is, we see that he is deeply struggling, and we'll see this even more in a moment. But what I want you to see from the very outset is that this lament, and all lament for that matter, is a prayer. And you need to know that it takes faith to pray in the midst of pain. To lament, even with its messy struggles and its tough questions, is an act of faith where one opens up his or her heart to God and begins talking to God. So I want to establish from the very beginning that prayerful lament with all of its tension and all of its challenges is better than silence. 
There's still hope in lament, even if the problem doesn't resolve itself quickly. But many people are afraid of of lament, and in fact, there's something far worse than lament, and here's what it is. It is silent despair. You see, lament and despair are polar opposites. Despair is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. It's where you deny that God is even listening anymore, and so you've stopped praying, and that's where some of you are this morning. You've been so wounded, so hurt, you're so frustrated, and you're so internally angry that you don't even talk to God about a particular subject, or for some of you, you don't talk to God at all anymore, because you're done. Like, my life didn't turn out like I wanted. You didn't deliver like you said you would. You haven't done this, and as a result, I'm not talking to you about my son anymore, God. I'm not talking to you about my daughter. I'm not talking to you about that pregnancy, God. I'm not talking to you about a spouse anymore. I'm not talking to you about anymore. I'm done talking to you. And in despair, you've not only given up on God, you've in effect slipped into unbelief. Despair is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. You know what lament is? Lament is one of the deepest and most costly demonstrations of belief in God. To pour out your heart to him takes faith. If you've ever worked with a couple who's having marital problems, you know that this silence issue is significantly problematic. If a couple comes to me and I say, how's your marriage? Oh, we're not talking to each other anymore. I know there's huge issues. In fact, if they come back a week later after we spend time together and they say, well, how'd your week go? Well, we're talking. We're just fighting. In my mind, that's great progress because the silence indicates hopelessness. I think the same thing is true for our relationship with God. I have no doubt that there are several of you who have simply stopped talking to God. And my hope today is that you'll be encouraged and motivated to start praying again. Maybe you'll have a friend who's really struggling and your typical MO is when they're struggling, you just want them to be quiet. And so you, in the midst of their lament, you often think it's comforting to come along and say, don't pray that way, Shh, don't say those things, Shh, don't, don't think that. And the reality is you're not being helpful at all. In fact, often we do that not because of their comfort, because of ours, because their pain makes us really nervous and we want them to stop being so in pain. Prayers of lament take faith. Notice the description of how much pain he's in. Verse two My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now, do you see that? See the difference? I mean, the the difference, I cry aloud to God. He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I will seek him. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. There's this sense of he's, he's passionately trying to pray. And yet, notice, when I remember God, I moan. So he has two things going on in his soul at the same time. I'm reaching out to you, and I know you hear me, but when I think about you, I moan. That's real Christian life right there. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Verse four, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. 
What's happening here is the psalmist is wrestling with the tension that exists of dealing with pain that's beyond belief and divine sovereignty, beyond comprehension, and he's just trying to live in this world with these tensions. Listen, lament is how you live when your life doesn't turn out like a Hallmark movie. I've seen a lot of Hallmark movies in the last few weeks. (laughs) And I got news for you. They're great, but they all end the same. I can walk in the room, see the guy, see the girl, I know it's gonna happen, they're gonna to get together. It's always, it's always, whether it's Christmas bells, or you know, some guy's got a farm, or who knows, or she's a singer, they, they, all, they, all, they just always get together. <laughs> the problem is, is while that's great TV, maybe, um, <laughs> that's not how life is. I get weary of stories or novels or movies that end with everything works out just perfectly because that doesn't look like my life or yours. There's a lot of loose ends. But there's more here than just this prayer. He wrestles with difficult questions. Look at verses five to nine. He says, when I considered the days of old, the years long ago, I said, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So what he's doing here, he's he's not just feeling, he's not just praying, but now he's thinking. He's trying to, to think about what has happened in the past. And then notice the difficult questions that he asks. Six rhetorical questions. Question one, will the Lord spurn forever? Question two, will he never again be favorable? Question three, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Question four, are his promises at an end for all time? Question five, has God forgotten to be gracious? Question six, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Notice what he's doing. He is rhetorically questioning the favor, the love, the promise, the faithfulness, and the compassion of God. I hope you are grateful that these types of questions are in the Bible because my guess is that many of us have asked these questions. I've asked them. Does the psalmist really believe that God isn't loving? Does does the psalmist really believe that God doesn't keep his promises? I don't think so. And as the rest of the psalm will bear it out, he does indeed believe that God is faithful. But he does something here that's very instructive and I think very helpful, but for some of you is very unusual. What he does here is he talks honestly about the struggle that the pain and the suffering has created with him, within him, and he is dealing with difficult emotions, and for that matter, difficult questions that surface when hard things come. Because although the psalmist knows these things to not be true, they feel true nonetheless. And that's what it's like to be human. You know God is trustworthy, but it doesn't feel like he is. You know he's gonna keep his promise, but you wonder, are you really? You know he's faithful and true, but how in the world is this gonna work out? And you live in the tension between the beautiful promises of God's word and the reality of your life, and in that tension, that's called lament. It's Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus really think that God had forsaken him forever, eternally? No, of course not. But his words give language to his position and his emotion and the pain of that moment of God turning his back on the son. 
momentarily. James Montgomery Boyce pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 32 years. I say that as context because this man who pastored for so many years says this about these kind of questions. He says, it is better to ask them than not to ask them because asking them sharpens the issue and pushes us toward the right positive response. Alexander McLaren insists that asking such questions is good. He writes, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. There's some of you who may be here and you're afraid of some of the things that you feel, some of the questions that you've wrestled with, and the reality is what lament does is lament pulls it out and puts it on the table so it can be dealt with and addressed. Praying through the pain means that we deal honestly with strong emotions that we feel and the difficult questions that we face. And so here's what I would ask you. Is there anything that you have stopped talking to God about? Any questions that you struggle with that you have not asked? Have you asked those questions with a a wrong heart? Is there someone near you who is lamenting, who needs you to help them a little differently in light of this text? You know, as a dad, when, when my kids question me, and they question from either a hurting and a humble heart, I'm inclined not only to listen, but it makes me love them even more. And in many respects, I'm glad and I'm affirmed as their father that they really want to understand. And I would suggest to you that God is no different. Lament is humbly praying through the pain and it not only leads us to worship, lament actually becomes worship. My prayer today is that there would be some of you who would start praying again. Now, not only is there prayer here, but the psalmist also remembers. Remember the psalm began with the repetition of the word aloud? Well, there's another word that's repeated. It's verse 11, and it's the word remember. Verse 10, then I said, And this is a big turn. This is where the psalm and the lament resolves itself. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the most, to the years of the right hand of the most high. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. So he begins to resolve the tension of what God is or isn't doing. Verse 11, yes, I will remember your wonders. Notice that it's shifting from just a general, I will appeal to the years of the right high, uh, right hand of the most high. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. It's kind of a generic statement. And then in verse 11, it, it shifts even further. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. In other words, what the psalmist is doing is is rehearsing the numerous ways in which God has proven himself to be trustworthy. So in 2015, did God show himself in any way to be trustworthy in your life? 
You know, I found that when I'm struggling with circumstances in my life and allowing despair to take over, part of the problem is the horizon of my view. I'm just seeing what's in front of me and I need to take a step back and take a longer view of how God has been faithful and how he's proven himself and what he's done over the, my, my years. That's why for those of you who are older, we need your help because you have a longer track record of God's faithfulness and you can rehearse how God has been faithful over and over and over, not just for 30 years or 40, but 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90 years in some of your cases. You can rehearse how God has shown himself faithful and trustworthy. Your remembering is really helpful when we're in the middle of lament. And then he says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And then in verse 15 through 20, we have a significant focus. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Think with me. What is the greatest moment in Old Testament history where God redeemed his people, he redeemed Jacob, he redeemed Joseph? What is the event in biblical history that the people of Israel would look at and say, this was the moment when God redeemed us? It's Exodus. When God took his people out of slavery, and then look what happens in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. What's, what does water and Exodus have to do with each other? What's the greatest moment that God showed up when Israel's on the bank of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is approaching and the people are saying to Moses, why'd you bring us out here? You're gonna kill us? This is, were there no graves in Egypt? You know, I mean, poor Moses. Yeah, that's the reason. It was a graveyard problem. I mean, what what in the world? And he says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the waters part and the people of Israel walk through and the hosts of Pharaoh's armies are drowned in the Red Sea. That was the moment that if you're an Israelite and you want to go to the floor of the floor of the floor of what's your relationship with God all about, you go to Exodus and you go to the Red Sea. And notice where he takes them. He takes them to the Red Sea. The waters poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the world when your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And then we have verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footsteps were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Notice those statements. Your way was through the sea, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock. What a beautiful way to describe the care of God. He led them through the sea, but his footsteps were not seen. You ever had anything like that in your life? You can see how God led you through. You look back now over the years, you can see from a distance how God was working through, but in the meantime, when you were in the middle of it, you couldn't see it very clearly, but now with some distance, you can see, oh, that's what that was all about. Here's part of the reason why, or maybe even there's things in your life you still don't know why, but you can know that God's footsteps are there even though they are unseen. He says, you led us like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
You see, the Exodus was the anchor for Asaph's lament. There was no greater moment in Israel's history. It defined God's relationship with his people. It was an anchor for Asaph's weary soul. And so remembering the Exodus event began to lead him through his lament. So for a Christian, what's our exodus? What's our Red Sea? If you lament like a Christian, and the reason why the world has no category for lament is because without the cross, that's our exodus, there is no floor on suffering. There's no purpose, there's no point, there's no meaning, it's just a moral free fall without any sense of God's purposes or what it is that he may be accomplishing. It is at the cross where all of our questions should be taken. It's at the cross that the foundation of our hope and the essence of our confidence is established, that no matter how dark or bleak or difficult life may be, God has already proven himself that he's for us and not against us. And so when difficult circumstances come and you wonder, God, where are you in this? You remember, he was right there in the cross. Everyone would have looked at it and said, well, that's a disaster. The Son of God just got killed. And boom, the cross gives way to the empty tomb. And redemption is made possible. Romans 8 says this, what shall we say to these things? What are these things? It's all the things he talked about previously, the sufferings, the difficulties, the trials. So what can you say to these things? What can you say to the things in your life where it hasn't turned out like you've wanted or difficulties that simply won't go away or a health diagnosis that doesn't look like there's a cure for it or a son or daughter who doesn't look like they're coming back? What do you say to those things? Here's what you say, if God is for me, there's no one who can be against me. What you say is this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, there's a floor on the floor of the floor of the floor of your suffering and Jesus bought that floor so you never have to wonder if God is for you or against you, he's for you. You never have to wonder, is this gonna turn out in accordance with your divine plan for my life and for your glory? Absolutely yes. And so what does that mean? It means then that you can lament the pain. You can embrace the brokenness. You can embrace the sufferings of this life while anchoring your heart to the bedrock of God's grace, which is why if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't know a thing of what I'm talking about. Your life is just simply based upon circumstances, the new job, the new relationship, the new thrill, the new thing. It's why you keep floating from one thing to another to another. There's no anchor in your life, and when the bottom falls out, there's nothing to hold you. And what the beautiful hope of this word from the Bible is that the ultimate problem in life is our sin. That's why there's so much brokenness in the world. And for those who put their trust in Christ, there is meaning and purpose even in the worst moments of life. That God is for those who've received his son and not against them. And therefore we can keep praying and keep seeking and keep wrestling 
and keep crying out to God in our pain, doing so believing and knowing that one day, someday, God is going to make everything right. It may not be in my lifetime, I may not be able to see it, but I know that one day, someday, you're gonna make everything right because you bought the right to make it right. And therefore, in our lament, we can trust. One of the ways that I've lamented over the years is to use a particular hymn. I've used it so many times. It's helped to anchor my soul by William Cooper, and it goes like this. We've already sung it. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In our lament, we can still trust. Hear me, in your pain, you can still pray. Because God hasn't abandoned you, and his steadfast mercies have not ceased, even though you're under the cloud. And Jesus bought that reality. Let's pray. Father, help us to have hearts, minds, and lives today who are anchored to the truth and the reality of your gospel. And give us faith to believe. Or we, we want to believe that your boundless grace rules over everything. And so help us as we pray to that end this week and as we pray even now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.